0: Our Holy Father, we thank you so much for today. Thank you for your mercy. Uh, thank you for your grace. Thank you that we can gather. And so, Lord, I pray that you would meet with us and that you would open up our eyes and our hearts and our minds, that you would stir our affections for you. Um, as we continue to pray, one of the verses I've been meditating on this week is Galatians chapter 5, uh, verse 24 to 25. It says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And, and those verses were really encouraging to me because there's so many times we find ourselves in our struggle against sin. And, and we feel like sin kind of gets the upper hand and we feel like we can't beat it anymore because that's just who we are. And what Paul is really saying is, no, because you belong to Christ Jesus... You have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. That sin no longer defines you. That's no longer who you are. You are in Christ Jesus. And then plus, you have the Spirit. And because you have the Spirit living inside of you, you need to keep and step with it as it's leading you, as it's guiding you, as it's strengthening you, as it's empowering you to be able to say no to sin. And so maybe there's some sin in your life that you've been struggling with. Some sin that you feel like, you know what, that's just who I am. I'm just going to keep on doing it because there's no way of being able to say no to it. I want to encourage you this morning. That's not who you are anymore. Because you are in Christ, you have died with Christ. You have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And now you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. So don't give up in your fight against sin, but to continue to walk in step with the Spirit. And so what are some sin that you need to put to death? What are some sin that you need to confess, that you need to surrender? What are some sin that you need the Lord to help you have victory over? Why don't you use this time right now just to confess it? Ask the Lord to help you in it. Our Holy Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for our union with Christ that we're now in you and you are in us, Lord Jesus. And because we've died with you and we've been raised with you, we can say no to sin. For you set us free from the bondages of sin. And we have your spirit living inside of us and so lord help us to continually walk and step with the spirit and help us to remember that we have the spirit living inside of us convicting us guiding us empowering us strengthening us giving us the ability to say no to sin and lord i pray that as we approach your word may your spirit lead us may your spirit open up our hearts and our minds as we look at Paul and we see the trials that he goes through and we see how he reacts and we see the reassuring, the reassuring word that you give him, Lord, I pray that that word would speak to us, that we would be encouraged, that we would not give up in our fight against sin, but that we'll be able to keep our eyes on you. So come, God, and speak to us. Make yourself known to us. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys. Just when I was thinking, you know, we need to merge the two services together. Today happens. Um, and so people have been asking me, when are we going to merge two services together? I don't know yet. Uh, we'll figure it out. We'll just take it one week at a at a time. But I'm so glad that all of you guys are here. I'm glad that you've decided to worship with us on this beautiful spring day, almost becoming summer. Um, so if you have your Bibles, let's get into the Word of God. Let's go to Acts uh, chapter 22, uh, verse 22. Acts chapter 22, verse 22. And so we're continuing our series through the book of Acts. We've been in the book of Acts for 34. Four weeks. Um, I think we're going to um, do uh, about five more weeks, and then we're going to wrap it up, and then we're going to try to figure out what we'll do over the summer, either go uh, through maybe some of the Psalms or, or uh, old prophets, uh, minor prophet book in, in the Old Testament. Um, but so so far in the book of Acts, we see how Paul has arrived in Jerusalem, and things kind of got interesting. He was kind of welcomed by the church in Jerusalem, especially by the apostles and by the elders as Paul was sharing about his ministry uh, that God has done in him and all the incredible things that God had done. And as a result of the Lord's incredible work in the ministry of Paul, they rejoice and they glorify God. And yet uh, things kind of go south. Uh, Paul finds himself in the temple in order to combat these false accusations that's been brought against him and he finds himself the entire uh, mob kind of uh, the crowd like kind of created this mob mentality and, and just to, took a hold of him and try to beat him and, and kill him and so we see the Romans uh, they arrest him he finds himself on trial and he tries to defend himself before the, before the crowd in, in humility and love as he is explaining about how he encountered Jesus and how that changed his life. And so today we're going to see how that worked out for him. Now, from Acts chapter 21 to 26, Paul is going to give five defense speeches. Last week, we looked at his very first defense speech in front of the Jewish crowd. Today, we're going to look at his second defense speech in front of the Jerusalem council. And then his last, his, his last three defense speeches is going to take place in Caesarea, where he's going to appear before Felix Festus and then King Agrippa II. And so Paul is on trial, and what Luke does is he gives us a series of escalating events, and then also how Paul reacts to these series of escalating events. Now, this text is not difficult to understand, but this text is very difficult to preach on because it's almost like a series of mis- mis- unfortunate events, and you're wondering what in the world is going on. And so here's what I think is the best way to look at this text and the best way to preach the text, okay? So imagine, listen, I think it's the best to look from the perspective of the Roman commander, The Roman commander, his name is Lysias, and we know that in Acts chapter 23, verse 26, when he writes a letter uh, to Felix, he kind of gives his name. So his name is Lysias. So, So what Lysias is trying to do is he's trying to investigate on Paul. He's trying to find out who Paul is, what Paul did, and what in the world caused all of this commotion. All he knows is that a mob of Jews is trying to kill Paul. So Lysias came in and, 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 and tried to bring him into the barracks to question him, to find out who is Paul, what is Paul doing, why is all this commotion around Paul. And so, and, and so Paul tells Lysias, do you mind me defending myself before the Jewish crowd? And Lysias was thinking, okay, well maybe if you defend yourself, maybe I'll have some clarity to figure out who in the world is this guy and what did he do to cause all of this commotion. He defends himself, Lysias is listening in, but then all of a sudden we find out that the crowd responds in violence. Lysias still has no answer, so he decides to take Paul back into the barracks and start to interrogate him via flogging. And then Paul kind of uh, notified him, you know, I'm a Roman citizen, which makes things even more complicated and more interesting. And Lysias still has no answer of who this Paul guy is and what this Paul guy did to cause all of this commotion. And then finally, he brings Paul before this Jewish council and listening in, trying to figure out what's going on. So, so, So imagine this dinner conversation. Lysias goes home. He sits down with his wife, they're enjoying a meal and he's kind of talking about his day and his wife asks, so how's it going in this case with Paul? Any news? And you can just imagine Lysias responding, you know what, I am so frustrated. Every single lead I'm taking ends up with a dead end. I have no idea who this Paul guy is. I have no idea uh, what they're trying to do, why he stirred all of this emotion and so that's kind of the flow of our story. So let's look at it through the eyes of Lysias. He's trying to get to the bottom of who Paul is, what Paul did to cause all of this commotion. And during these trials, we see how Paul reacts. Lysias still has no answer. And then in verse 11, the Lord Jesus appears before Paul, and we're going to really spend a lot of time camping out on these reassuring words that Jesus gives him. So through the eyes of Lysias, let's look at uh, Acts chapter 22, verse 22. It says this. They listened to him up to this point. Then they raised their voices shouting, wipe this man off the face of the earth. He should not be allowed to live. Any anger issues right here? You can see how they feel towards Paul. Verse 23. As they were yelling and flinging aside their garments and throwing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, directing that he be interrogated with the scorch to discover the reasons they were shouting against him like this. And as they stretched him out for the lash, Paul said to the centurion standing by, Is it legal for you to scorch a man who's a Roman citizen and is uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went and reported to the commander saying, What are you going to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. The commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, he said. The commander replied, I bought the citizenship for a large amount of money. But I was born a citizen, Paul said. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. The commander, too, was alarmed when he realized Paul was a Roman citizen and had bound him. So let's stop here and talk a little bit. So obviously, after the crowd rages at Paul, expresses their desire to shred him to peace, Lysias still has no answer. He takes him into the barracks for further examination. He wanted to interrogate him via flogging. Now, now John Paul Hill kind of gives us good information about about the nature of this interrogation technique. He says this, This was particularly a cruel manner of scorching that considered a beating across the raw flesh with leather thongs in which were inserted rough pieces of bone or metal. The thongs were set in a stout wooden handle, and this was much more severe than the beating that both Paul and Silas experienced in Philippi. this This is what he said. He said it was not uncommon for the victims to die from it. So basically, Paul went from defending himself to finding himself in the barracks again under interrogation, probably facing his death. And before Paul experiences this beating, he brings up a question to the centurion that changes everything. Look at verse 25. It says, As they stretched them out for the lash, Paul said to the centurion standing by, Is it legal for you to scorch a man who is a Roman citizen and is uncondemned? You see, Paul knew the law of the land. He knew that a Roman citizen was not allowed to be arrested nor allowed to be, uh, to be flogged without an undue trial or uh, without a sentencing being processed. And the centurion knew the danger of what it meant to to, to flog a Roman citizen without a due trial, without a proper sentence. And so he immediately backs off, tells Lysias the commander, we have a Roman citizen on our hands. And, And Lysias is now even more overwhelmed. The situation just got more complicated because in his mind he's thinking, who is this guy? What did he do? And he goes up to Paul and he says, Paul, I had to pay a large amount of money to buy my citizenship. I had to pay for it. I had to bribe somebody for it, and it cost me a lot of money. You don't look like a wealthy guy. How in the world are you a Roman citizen? And Paul says, I was born one. Now, Paul in Romans chapter 13, verse 1 to 7, he he urges Christians to submit to governing authorities as God's ministers of justice. And so as he tells Christians, I want you to submit to these governing authorities because these authorities are from God and they, in a sense, administer the justice of of God. He also expects these governing authorities to exercise their duties rightly. So Paul, what Paul is doing is by bringing up this law, he's challenging these authorities to honor the law because he understands that these laws were written to protect its citizens. And so by asking this question, he, he's not going against them, but rather he is saying, if this law was here to protect me, I expect you to exercise the law to protect me as well. And so this is what he does. He appeals to the law for protection. So Paul finds himself... He encounters hostility with the Roman crowd, uh, with the Jewish crowd. He finds himself almost uh, being flogged, facing his death. And now we're going to see in verse 30 how he is set before the Jewish Sanhedrin. Look at verse 30. It says, the next day, since he, that's Lysias, wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and instructed the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to convene. He brought Paul down and placed him before them. Paul looked straight at them, at the Sanhedrin, and said, "'Brothers, I have lived my life before God and an all good conscience to this day.' The high priest Ananias ordered those who were standing next to him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, "'God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. "'You're sitting here judging me according to the law and yet in violation of the law.' Are you ordering me to be struck? And those standing nearby said, Do you dare revile God's high priest? I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, replied Paul. For it is written, You must not speak evil of a ruler or your people." So now Paul finds himself in front of the, 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 Jewish high priest, in front of the supreme council where Lysias is trying to find answers to say, maybe I can find out about who this Paul guy is and who this, and, and what he has done. And so Lysias is listening in. Now, now this Jewish council, the Supreme Council, uh, consisted of the high priest and his priestly family, the uh, the, the Sadducees, and then also the Pharisees. Now, I don't have time to go into who the Sadducees are or the Pharisees. Here's a real cliff note version. Sadducees were more on the liberal end. Pharisees were more on the conservative end, okay? Whatever you want to do with that information, that's up to you. But this is kind of where we find ourselves. And so Paul begins his opening statement in defending himself. And and look at verse 1. This is what he says. In verse 1, he says, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. So in other words, what he is saying is, I have a clear conscience before God. Look at my character. Look at my track record. I haven't done anything wrong. I've not violated any commands or any laws. And, and when Paul, what Paul is saying, he's not saying he is sinless. He's saying he's blameless before these people. He's lived his life above reproach. And no second with his opening statement about his uprightness and his character... Ananias the high priest immediately commands him to be sucker punched in the face. Literally. Like like what in the world is going on? Like what a bizarre interruption. Like you would think the high priest who's listening to this case with, 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 with his own character who would basically pay attention and try to listen what Paul did uh, before he would execute judgment. And immediately when Paul says, look, I'm not guilty, I haven't done anything wrong, instead of listening to why he's not guilty, he orders somebody to sucker punch him in the face to condemn him immediately. And you can almost see the stark contrast between Paul and his upright character and the violent reaction of Ananias, the high priest. And this was totally unacceptable and unbiblical. And you're wondering, okay, why such aggression? Well, first of all, Ananias thought that Paul was a wicked man. He thought that he was a troublemaker and that Paul is guilty regardless of his defense. And what Paul said about his character, about being blameless, really meant nothing to him. Second reason why was Ananias was also a violent man. According to historians, he was a greedy, quick-tempered, violent, and even pro-Roman sentiment man. In other words, he was for Roman rule because if the Romans ruled, he's comfortable in his place of power, he gets more money. And this is what's going on. And Paul, being struck in the face with his opening speech, leads Paul to react. And look at his reaction in in verse 3. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You're sitting here judging me according to the law, and yet in violent violation of the law, are you ordering me to be struck? So in other words, Paul knew that Ananias' order was unjust. And so he basically throws a verbal break, an insult at the the high priest saying, you are a hypocrite. You're not really a high priest. You are a whitewashed wall. And that was meant to insult him. In other words, what he is saying is on the outside, you look like you're clean. You look like you're stable. You look like you are God's man to lead God's people. But on the inside, you are wicked, you are corrupt, and you are flimsy. And even though while Paul was speaking the truth because the cause of being sucker punched was unjust, it's almost as if he seems to regret his reaction. Because look, look, look at verse 4 to 5. Those standing nearby said, Do you dare revile God's high priest? And look what he says in verse 5. He says, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, replied Paul. For it is written, You must not speak evil of a ruler or your people. So here Paul got, He starts with his opening sentence. He gets sucker punched. Uh, he throws a, a verbal brick at the high priest, calls them a hypocrite. They bring it to his attention, and it almost seems like he's backtracking. So, so the question is, okay, what do we make of these verses, of this, the, this statement of Paul? Now, there's two views, and so I'm going to present the two views and then maybe try to draw a conclusion. The first view that some people have is called the sincerity view the sincerity that maybe Ananias was not dressed in his his high priest attire because this was not a regular meeting. This was a special meeting, and so maybe Ananias didn't have time to put on his priestly garment, which means he might not be recognizable. Maybe Paul did not recognize that Ananias gave the order because of all the commotion. Maybe he was just addressing the crowd in general. Maybe we know that Paul's eyesight was bad, and maybe he did not really could see Ananias. He just kind of saw a white, blurry vision. Or maybe Paul just did not know Ananias because he's been, so long, he's been gone for so long out of Jerusalem, and all the transition and leadership took place. That, that's the sincerity view. The, the other view is called the sarcastic view. The sarcastic view was Paul was using irony in his language. In other words, he was saying, brothers, I see nothing priestly about this guy. He might have the title, he might wear the clothes, but there's nothing priestly about him, so why even honor him? I think regardless of your view, whether it's a sincerity view or the sarcastic view, here's what we do know about Paul. Like, like What we do know about Paul is that he has a sincerity when it comes to honoring leaders. So what does he write to his brothers and sisters in Christ? What are we supposed to do? Honor our leaders. Submit to our leaders. So if Paul gives us this command, what does he expect himself to do? Honor the leaders. And we know that since Paul gave us this command, when you cross the line, we know from Paul more than likely he would say, you know what? If you cross the line, repent from it, own it, and then start honoring your leaders. So maybe Paul did cross the line. Maybe he did sin in a sense where he reacted in a bad way and he shouldn't have said it. Like there's nothing wrong with admitting that when it comes to Paul because Paul is still human. He still struggles. Well, How would you feel starting your opening sentence and all you're saying not guilty and then all of a sudden you get sucker punched by the guard that the judge ordered? Would you just kind of stand by and say, you know, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. You would say, what's this all about? You have no right to condemn me. You, you even, even heard my case. So, so we know where Paul is. Paul's not in a very good place. But, like, think about this guy. Here Paul has done nothing wrong. He's gone through the cleansing ceremony. All of a sudden, Jewish recognize him. They falsely accuse him. They try to beat him. They try to kill him. Then he gets arrested. He starts his defense about his encounter with Jesus. They want to tear him to shreds. He's brought him to the barracks. They're about to fog him. He says, look, I'm a Roman citizen. And now he finds himself in front of the Roman council and he gets sucker punched on his opening statement. The dude's not having a good day here. Can you imagine the horrendous place that he finds himself? And then things take a sharp turn. Look at verse 6 here. When Paul realized that one part of them were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, He cried out in the Sanhedrin brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I'm being judged because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees says there's no resurrection and neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees affirmed them all. The shouting grew loud, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party got up and argued vehemently, We find nothing evil in this man. What if a spirit and an angel has spoken to him? And when the dispute became violent, the commander, that's Lysias, feared that Paul might be torn apart by them and ordered the troops to go down, take him away from them, and bring him into the barracks." So in the middle of the speech, he just shouts and he brings the reason for his arrest why he's on trial. And the reason for his trial is because of the hope of the resurrection. Now, now the question is, like, did Paul use this as a di- diverting uh, strategy? Well, yes and no. Because Paul, the real issue behind the trial was what? the resurrection, because of his belief in Jesus, because he held to the resurrection of the dead, believing that Jesus is not dead, but has been raised from the dead. That is the very reason he is on trial. And throughout his defense speeches, we're going to see him constantly come back to the resurrection of Jesus. And with that being said, with Paul saying it, he knew it would cause a division between Pharisees and Sadducees. And Luke tells us one believed in the resurrection, the Pharisees did, the Sadducees didn't. And all of a sudden, a riot broke out. And we see the effect of this theological controversy. The, char- the, the, the Pharisees said, Paul's innocent. I see no reason for why condemning him, where the Sadducees are saying, no, he is guilty. And the shouting became so violent that Lysias, again, no answers. He was trying to listen in. What, what, what in the world is happening? What did this Paul guy do? Now, all of a sudden, there's this resurrection of the dead. He had to jump in, and he had to get him out of it because of fear of Paul's life. And it was obligation because Paul was a Roman citizen. Paul finds himself back in the barracks. Lysias, no answers. I don't know who Paul is. I don't know what he did. I don't know what he's being accused of. Now imagine Paul. He finds himself back in the barracks, nursing his wounds, probably wondering, like, what what, what in the world just happened? I came to Jerusalem to present a gift to the church in Jerusalem, all the money I've raised from all the Gentile churches to support our brothers and sisters of Christ that are Jewish. I got falsely accused, and I knew I would be falsely accused, so that doesn't shock me. I defended myself. But now all of a sudden, the Romans arrested me, wanted to flog me, and I had to appeal for my citizenship. And when I found myself before the Jewish uh, Jerusalem council, they responded violently towards me. My very own people rejected me, and I regretted maybe how I responded. I probably shouldn't have said that. What's going to happen to me? What does my future look like? Where's this going? Lord, what are you doing? I've been a faithful witness. And look at verse 11. Verse 11, everything changes. Look at how Jesus appears to him. It says, the following night. Notice it's not that very night, but the following night. It's almost as if Paul had to kind of endure another night with all of this trauma and licking his own wounds, trying to kind of rationalize what in the world is going on. But it says, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. When else did Paul find himself discouraged, wanting to give up, being worn out, and the Lord Jesus appears to him at night? In Corinth. Back in Corinth, Paul found himself overwhelmed in ministry, found himself burnt out, and what did the Lord Jesus do? He appeared to him. He said, rest. No one's going to touch you. Enjoy this time of rest. Spend time here preaching the gospel. Testify about me. And here again, Paul finds himself in Jerusalem, and the Lord in the middle of the night appears to him and brings him word of comfort and encourages him and energizes him to, 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 for his upcoming trip in Rome. So again, we can assume and we know that Paul found himself in a low point of life. He found himself uh, going to an unsupportive church in Jerusalem. He is suffering physical and emotional before the crowd and the rulers of his people. He has many questions, many regrets because of some of his reactions. And he was in desperate need of the Lord's grace. And this is what he received Jesus stood by and gave him reassurance, he gave him an exhortation have courage. And then he gave him a commendation. You did it. Just as you testified before Jerusalem about me, so you will go to Rome and testify about me. It's almost as if Jesus says, Paul, I'm proud of you. You did it. You were faithful. But now I want your focus to not defend yourself. I want your focus to testify about me now even though these words were specifically for paul in his time of trouble I do think we can apply this verse to our lives because of what Scripture teaches, that we ourselves, when we find ourselves down and out, nursing our own wounds, wondering what in the world is going on, I think we can apply these reassuring words into our lives. And so basically Jesus gives Paul four reassurances, and also we can apply these four reassurances to our life. Here's the first reassurance if you're taking notes. The first reassurance that the Lord gave Paul and that the Lord can give us is this, is that the Lord knows us. He knows us. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, okay, what's the big deal? He knows me. But think about the big deal here. Jesus knew Paul's situation, and he knew Paul's condition. He knew what Paul was thinking. He knew how Paul was feeling physically and emotionally. And that's true for us. Jesus knows us. He knows our name. He knows where we're from. He knows what we've gone through. He knows what we're thinking. He knows what we're feeling. He knows exactly what we are going through. And it's not because of verse 11 that I can say that is true, but because of other verses in Scripture. I'm thinking about John chapter 10, verse 14. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own knows me. In other words, what Jesus is telling the people is, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and they know me. In other words, the Lord knows us. If you belong to him, he knows you, and you know him. He knows what you're thinking, how you're feeling, what you're going through. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about this truth. He uses this illustration. He said, I'm reminded of the Quaker who came to see John Bunyan in prison and said to him, Friend, the Lord sent me to you, and I've been seeking you in half the prisons in England. And this is what John Bunyan said. He said, No, that can't be true. Because if the Lord had sent you, you would have come here at once, for the Lord knows How long I've been sitting in this jail cell. In other words, John Bunyan knew and understood that the Lord knew him. The Lord knew what he was thinking and exactly what cell he was in. And I think that's reassuring words for us. The Lord knows our condition, He's not oblivious to it. He knows what you're struggling with, He knows what you're facing. He knows your insecurities. He knows your doubts. He knows the sin that nobody knows about that you're wrestling with, the many times you want to give up in your fight against it. And I think it's so encouraging to the fact that the Lord knows us. And you know why? Because I'm reminded of what the psalmist says. What is man that you are mindful of us? We're like the the flowers, the grass that withers and fades. Who am I? That the Lord of the universe that spoke everything into existence, the most powerful being who had no beginning, whose self existence self-sustaining, knows me by name. And he knows what I'm thinking. He knows what I'm feeling. He knows exactly what I'm going through. The second reassurance is not only does the Lord know us, but the Lord is with us. Jesus' presence comforted Paul. He appeared to Paul. In other words, by his simple appearance, he's saying, Paul, you're not alone. Have courage. Why can Paul have courage? Because he's not alone. Jesus is with him. And while Paul felt alone, the reality was that Jesus was with him. And later on, Paul, in his letter uh, to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 17 to 18, he would reflect on this moment. And this is what he said, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. In uh, uh, other words, Timothy, I was down and out. I don't know whether I was coming or going. I'm going through all of these trials. I don't know if I'm going to make it. He says, Timothy, but the Lord stood with me. He was with me. He strengthened me so that I might fully preach the word and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil work and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. In other words, he's reflecting on this time period. And, and, and next week we'll talk about it, but John Stott says uh, the chances of Paul's survival in all these trials is like a butterfly facing a steamroller. Paul calls it facing from, being rescued from the lion's mouth. I was in it, but the Lord was with me. He strengthened me. He rescued me from it so that I could do what? Live happily ever after No, so that I could proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the Gentiles and make it to Rome. And he will bring me into his presence safely. Doesn't mean he will keep me from harm's way, but I will make it into his presence one way or another. There's nothing that can stop that. And to that, I give God all the glory and all the honor. And think about this truth. The Lord is with us. Just as Jesus stood for Paul at the cross. In other words, Jesus took Paul's place at the cross, dying for his sins, paying the penalty, facing God's wrath for Paul. So not only did Jesus stood in his place with the cross, but Jesus also stood with Paul at his moment of when he was down in the barracks. And that's true for us. Jesus stood in our place. Faced the death we should have faced. Paid the penalty of our sin that was geared towards God. Facing God's wrath on our behalf. Not only did He stood for us at the cross, but He's also standing with us right now. And we know the Lord will never leave us, nor will He forsake us. How do I know it? Well, look at the Word. Uh, Hebrews 13, verse 5, and and I think Hebrews 13, 5 is very interesting. It says this, keep your life free from the love of money, be satisfied with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Now, the reason why I say this verse is really interesting, because you're almost, the, the author is saying, okay, quit worrying about money. Just be satisfied with what you have. Because he'll never leave you nor forsake you. So so it's easy for us to look at this verse and say, okay, I shouldn't be worrying about my my money. I should just be content with a little what I have. I don't think that's what that verse means. Here's why. Because look at the promise at the end of the verse. The author is saying, quit worrying about money and the love of money because what is money going to do? It's going to leave you and forsake you. That, that's what's money going to do. Anybody? Have you been successfully being able to keep up, uh, hold your money? What do you have every week, every month? Bills. So what's happening to your money? It's leaving. It's volatile. It's fleeing. It's fading. Yes, you might have a wonderful four hundred one k. Guess what's going to happen in the next couple of years? We know it's going to crash. You're going to lose all of it. It's volatile. And what the author is saying is, quit loving it. It's volatile. It's going to leave you and forsake you. But rather, love the one. Be satisfied with the one that will never leave you and never forsake you. And who is that? That's Jesus. So it doesn't mean, hey, just be satisfied with the little money you have. It's saying, why love something that's going to leave you and forsake you if you have the one? That will never leave you and that will never forsake you and that will always satisfy you. And this is the reassurance that we need to hold on to. Not only does the Lord know me, but the Lord is with me and he will never leave me and he will never forsake me. He's not volatile. So even when I act like, like, like not very good and I disappoint and I live and I and I fall in sin or I don't always walk the way I should, what is the promise? There's no condition. It's not like I'll be here as long as you behave. There is no condition because of the word never. And so that should be reassuring for us. The, the, the third uh, reassurance we've got to move on is, is not only does he know us, is he with us, but the Lord is for us. I love the way the Lord Jesus showed his support to Paul. The very first thing he, he, he tells Paul, he gives him an exhortation, a command, have courage. But then he gives him a commendation. In a sense, hey, Paul, you did it. You testified about me in Jerusalem. I'm so proud of you. Now go and testify about me in Rome. And later on, and we even know that Paul, to to, to the church in Rome, he would write in in Romans 8.31, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What a great question, but even a better answer. Yes, the question is incredible, God is for us. But the answer, who can top that? Yeah, no one. God's for me. And even though I face these trials and I face these oppositions, who who can be against me? Nobody. Nobody. Because I have God on my side. And that means I can press on in view of this reality. I can remain bold in Jesus Christ, faithfully proclaim his name, regardless of how people respond, because I know the Lord is with me. I know the Lord is for me. And I know the Lord knows me. And the last truth is this, if you're taking notes, is that the Lord is not finished with us. Like Paul might have wondered, is this the end in this barracks? And the Lord reminded him, it's not your end. You're going to make it to Rome. But in telling Paul, it was necessary that he testify there. The sovereign Lord let the apostle know that he would make sure that he would survive. And even though from now on till Rome, he's going to go through many trials and many hardships and many sufferings. Paul could endure it with confidence because he knew he was going to make it to Rome. And that the Lord is faithful in keeping his word. And just as the Lord is not finished with Paul, we know the Lord is not finished with us. Why? Because we have breath. As long as you can breathe, the Lord is not finished with you. Psalm 31, verse 15. It's so countercultural. It says, The course of my life is in your power what do we teach in our culture the course of my life is in my power but that's not what the Bible teaches the Bible teaches no the course of my life is in his power and in other words every breath that I breathe is by his power in his hand I don't control my own destiny I don't control my future and I think we've learned it pretty fast. Anybody feel fragile and weak and out of control because of this pandemic or probably wherever we're at? I think it taught us how little control we have. And so it's encouraging for us that the Lord is not with us, is is with us. He's uh, he's not finished with us. As long as we're still breathing. He's not finished with us yet so what wonderful news knowing that he knows us he is with us he is for us he's not finished with us so so here's the question how can we expect the experiencing of this reassuring comforting words of jesus if we don't get visions like paul did we get these reassuring comforting words by by his word his spirit Revealing truth to us, speaking to us through the very Word of God, which means we need to continue to be in the Word of God because we're, when we're in the Word, as if it is God speaking to us. And so we have to get, our, we have to get into it, marinate our thoughts and our hearts in, into His Word as we can find great strength from His Word. So I think the application is if you want constant reassurance, get in the word. Cling to the promises of God that he's made to us. When you find yourself down and out, when you find yourself overwhelmed, get in the word. Cling to it. As you see the promises he's made. So how do I know that the Lord is with me? How do I know he is for me? He knows me. He's not finished with me? Because of his word. And because of his table. Think about this table right now as we're getting ready to celebrate communion. How do I know that the Lord knows me? You get to sit at this table as what? Sons and daughters of the king. Anybody that doesn't know their son and daughter? No, we all know our sons and daughters because they're ours. If you belong to God, you are a son and daughter of the king, which means he knows you. You are his child. How do I know that the Lord is with me? Because when you get to sit at this table as a son and daughter of the king, you're sitting, eating and drinking in his presence. Like this table is a shadow of the great wedding banquet that is waiting for us where we get to feast in the presence of the king. So this reminds me of his presence as I'm eating and drinking in his presence. How do I know that the Lord is for me? Because of what is on this table. His body. His blood. How do I know he's for me? Because his body was broken for me. His blood was broken was shed for me. If there were no body and no blood, no elements in other words, I would not know that he is for me. But because I can see these elements, it's a visual reminder that he is for me. Why? Because his body was broken for me. His blood was shed for me. And how do I know that the Lord is not finished with me? Because I get to accept this invitation of sitting at his table. And as long as I get to sit at this table, feasting on his body, feasting on his blood, he's not finished with me yet. And so this is a visual reminder of the reassuring words we've received. This is a visual reminder that I know that the Lord knows me, that the Lord is with me that the Lord is for me, that the Lord is not finished with me because I get to sit at the table where I feast on his body and I drink his blood as I'm reminded how his body was broken for me, how his blood was shed for me, how he died in my place. And now I've entered into a new covenant with Jesus Christ. I am no longer a sinner, but I am a saint. I'm no longer an enemy of God, but a son and daughter of the king where I get to sit in his presence. And so this is what I want you to meditate on. I want you to meditate on these reassuring words. I want you to think about how how the Lord knows you, how he's with you, how he's for you, how he's not finished with you. As you think about his body that is broken for you and his blood that was poured out for you. So as our, 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 our men and women, our ushers are coming forward to distribute these elements, use this time to meditate on these reassuring words. Think about his body that was broken for you, his blood that was shed for you. But then there's also this warning. Like, yes, this table is holy, and this table is not for everybody. This table is only for those that are in Jesus Christ. And so if you are in Christ, you get to sit at the table. But if you're not, you need to abstain from it unless you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. And then if there's sin that you have refused to repent of, you've not confessed, you need to repent and confess this. Not so that you could sit at the table, but it's first of all a reminder of what Jesus has done because you can confess it knowing there's what? There's forgiveness because of Jesus' body, broken for his blood that was shed for you. But if you refuse to repent and confess that sin, you're almost saying, I don't believe in Jesus' death for me i don't believe his blood is sufficient for me and this is why repentance is so important let me pray for us and then we'll distribute the elements and we'll wait for everybody so we can do it together our holy father we thank you for this visual reminder how you know us how you are with us and for us and you're not finished with us And so as we hand out these elements, can can, can they become, these reassuring words become a reality to us? As we think about your body that was broken for us and your blood that was shed for us, can that truth become more real as it comforts our hearts, as it overwhelms us with your presence? The wonderful privilege we get to have because of you, Lord Jesus. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Our Heavenly Father, I am so grateful that you have set this table for us regardless of our behavior. Lord, I am so sorry for how I constantly reject you, how I do not cling to your truths, how at times I don't think you're good, I don't think you're faithful, and yet you remain faithful even when I am unfaithful. And you set this table waiting for me. And you invite me in. And Lord, I feel so unworthy. And yet, I'm at this table not because of my worthiness and my performance. I'm at this table because my older brother Jesus, the King of kings, died on the cross for my sins. Paid for it in full. And now I know there is no condemnation for your wrath has been satisfied. And I'm at this table not because of my worthiness but because of Christ's worthiness that's been imputed on me. And Lord, you look at me and you don't see me in all of my flaws and all of my imperfections and all of my sin. You look at me and you see me as perfect because you see Christ in me And even though I don't fully understand how that works, I know that's how you look at me because I am in Christ and Christ is in me. And I thank you for that. And so can these truths really resonate in our hearts? Help us to realize what we have in Jesus. Help us to look to Jesus, to cling to Jesus. Help us to be able to put to death the desires of our flesh, its passions, knowing because that's not who we are anymore. We are in you. We belong to you. We have your spirit. So help us. Strengthen us. Help us to get in your word. Help us to to finish your mission of proclaiming the gospel to everybody. And right now, help us to worship, and may these words that we're singing, may they encourage our hearts so we can walk out of here in boldness and confidence, knowing we belong to you. We are yours, and you are ours. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand. Let us worship.